0: Uh, children, if you'll notice in the bulletin, the words that you are going to be looking for tonight or listening to or listening for are found there. Deny or denial. Cross. Follow. Jesus. World. New life. Pursue and rest. I'm giving you several. All right, so be listening uh, for those. Tonight, uh, as we walk through this passage, Uh, over 150 years ago, uh, Alex uh, de Tocqueville, who was a French sociologist and foreign minister, um, wrote the following after a visit to the United States. He said, each citizen is habitually engaged in the contemplation of a very puny subject, namely, himself I think it's safe to say that 150 years or so later that that assessment continues to be accurate uh, if not an understatement uh, in the words of Eugene Peterson he said no one or no thing interrupts people more than momentarily from the obsessive preoccupation with their with themselves he goes on to say america is in a conspicuous need of unselfing. I thought that was a great phrase. And, and while it might be p- more pronounced here in the West, I think it would be appropriate, of course, to say that it is not just applicable in the United States, but actually descriptive uh, of the general unregenerate human condition worldwide. Right, just look at the number of selfies. In, on Facebook or in, on social media. Unfortunately, the Christian message that at one time ran counter-cultural um, or, or ran counter to the cultural message of the self-centered pursuit of happiness at all costs has slowly grown more and more silent over time. On Sunday morning... Or in weekly spiritual blogs or podcasts, we are more likely to hear a talk that contains encouragement to love ourselves in order that we might love others. Or we hear something along the lines of a a message of Scripture that has nothing or is boiled down To nothing more than a prescription for experiencing our best life now. Or we might hear a message, uh, one that calls us to take up our cause and be Jesus. Rather than, rather than hear a biblical message on denying ourselves, taking up our crosses daily and following Jesus and the latter is our message tonight from Luke chapter 9 verses 23 to 27 and in this passage um, Jesus lays out what I've uh, entitled or, or identified as the cost of discipleship and it's in direct opposition. his. His message is in direct opposition to the self and the self-actualization and the self-interest and the self-indulgence that are evil and detrimental to the soul. It, It can't be any more plain than that. And in these verses, Jesus presents two things in particular. He presents significant demands and sobering possibilities. And that is, of course, our outline, and you will find that in the back of the bulletin if you would like to follow along in that way. And as is our custom, let's go to the Lord in prayer before uh, we go any further. Uh, Father, by your Spirit, please grant power to the preaching of your Word. Grant us the ability to appraise and apprehend your truth. Awaken our attention, open our sorrows, convict us and challenge us. And then please refresh us, encourage us, comfort us as we see Jesus and hear his gospel tonight. I ask for your support, as always, your support, your strength, the filling of your spirit that I may be a pure channel of of grace, of your grace, and do something for you this evening. And I pray that I would communicate with clarity and fluency and fervency and grace for the sake of Christ and His church. And I pray these things in His name. Amen and amen. Now, to accurately describe this uh, cost of discipleship, we need to go back just briefly and remember Peter's proclamation as well as uh, the prediction of Jesus from the previous pericope that we covered last week. Um, you'll remember that Peter had just proclaimed that Jesus was the Christ of God. And that wasn't just his opinion, it was a, the opinion of the group. He was speaking on behalf of everyone that was present. And he, in doing so, he's, he said very clearly that they believed that Jesus was the long-awaited, much-anticipated Messiah. He was the Anointed One. He was the Christ of God. He was... God's representative, and, and while he and they had a firm grasp on uh, who he was, they were lacking a firm grasp on what he came to do. They understood he was the Messiah, but weren't quite sure what the Messiah was, was going to do. Yes, he was the Messiah, he was the king, he was the servant of God, but what they didn't quite understand was that he was also to be the suffering servant. And that was why Jesus followed that by saying they needed to wait. Before you go pronouncing who I am, before you go proclaiming that I am the Messiah, we need need to wait a minute to use, I guess, common vernacular today. But we need to wait because I have to suffer. I have to wait. We have to wait because... I'm going to be rejected. We have to wait until I die. We have to wait until I rise from the dead. Because people are not going to understand until everything is finished and complete. Even you, I mean, they themselves weren't going to fully understand and grasp what he had come to do until it was complete, until it was finished, until it was all accomplished. And before we move on to the significant demands that that follow right on the heels of that, I I want us to go back also and just for a minute address a word that I didn't deal with directly but but it's very important for us again as we move forward and it's found in verse 22 and it's the word must. Jesus said he must suffer. He must be rejected. He must die. He must rise again from the dead. And the question that we ask is, why? Why must he do those things? And, and you've heard me say before, but the answer is twofold. One, because it was a divine necessity due to God's sovereignty. Right? The things that Jesus had just described wasn't plan B. It had been plan A from the foundation of the world. And at that time, they didn't quite understand that. But after they saw him suffer, after they saw him being rejected, after they saw him die, and after they saw him rise from the grave, they understood. A perfect example is found in Acts chapter two. Peter is preaching, and he says, "Men of Israel, hear these words: Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, and with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknow- foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What Jesus did, or what uh, Peter didn't know before, he knew after." He needed to wait. But why else Must he die? Why must he go through these things? Again, it's divine necessity, but it's divine necessity in regards to God's justice and mercy and grace. Right? Due to the fall and our sin, we are, and we were and we are, in need of both forgiveness and obedience. All of us are in need. Uh, Due to our sin, right, our our sin needs to be removed, and a righteousness that we don't have needs to be credited to us. We therefore needed a substitute. We we needed someone to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. We needed a willing Savior who, who was perfectly righteous and fully and perfectly obedient to the point of death on the cross. A cross upon which he would lay himself down to pay the full and final penalty and debt that we owed for our sin. It was necessary, you heard me say last week, it was necessary for him, for Christ to obediently, mercifully, and lovingly die and rise again from the dead on our behalf. It was something we could not do, and He needed to do that, that we might be forgiven, that we might be redeemed, that we might be set free from that bondage of sin. He needed to do that so that we could be set free from the bondage of the curse of the law. He needed to do that so that we could be justified and adopted and sanctified and glorified. He needed to purchase our, sanct- uh, our salvation. And it was necessary for Him to rise from the dead, conquering sin and death so that we might be released from its bondage and from the fear of both and live eternally with Him. And that resurrection was the the Father's stamp of approval of the work of the Son on our behalf. He must, He must do those things. And brothers and sisters, we must never lose sight of that divine necessity Never lose sight because it's essential. There is, there has been, and there is, and there will never be another way of salvation other than through the Lord Jesus Christ. Mankind's greatest problem has never been, nor will it ever be, outside of ourselves or circumstantial. The problem has been, is, and will always be internal. It will always be a spiritual issue inside of us. And Jesus didn't come simply to, to show us how much God loved us or to show us how to live. Which He did. We do learn those things, but the most important thing that He came to do was to be a substitute. A sacrificial substitute. To live for us, to suffer for us, to be rejected for us, to die for us, to rise again for us. And the salvation that He has secured and that He offers is received to us, is received by us, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Him alone. He's our only hope for salvation. And right on the heels of that, he says, Jesus says what he does in verses 23 to 27. Right? That's the context of what he then says, right? Right on the heels of disclosing this divine necessity, he says to the disciples, to those who are listening, you need to know something. You need to know not only what I have come to do and not only what lies ahead, But you need to know that if anyone is going to come after me, if anybody's going to follow, if anybody's going to call himself a disciple of mine, if anybody is is going to profess, as you just have, that I am the Christ of God, if you are going to proclaim, as you just have, that I am the Messiah, that I'm the anointed one, you need to know. If If you're going to proclaim that I'm the king of the Kingdom. You need to know that the cost of following me is drastic. The cost of following me is severe. There's a cost of discipleship. You need to know what your profession is going to lead to or what following me or being my disciple will require of you. You need to know that professing faith in me is not going to be all fun and games. It's a serious business. It's not going to be easy and amusing. And he does that by laying out these three significant demands. The first is in the very first statement. He says, You must deny yourself. If you're going to be a follower, if you're going to confess or profess me to be the Christ of God and be my disciple, you must deny yourself. Another way to put it would be you need to develop a new devotion. You need to have a new devotion. Devotion is defined as loyalty or a strong uh, enthusiasm and admiration for another. And unfortunately, we know that prior to uh, being born again by the Spirit, prior to our conversion, uh, our loyalty or man's loyalty and strong enthusiasm and admiration is for ourselves. Right? It's all turned inward. Man's man's propensity, pre-conversion, is due to sin, but it is to be loyal to and admire ourselves more than anyone else. Prior to conversion, we believe we are number one. Everything in the world revolves around us. Everything we do involves worship of ourselves. Everything involves ad- admiration of ourselves. We believe we deserve what we want, when we want, how we want it, and we want to enjoy it with whom we want for as how long for a- as long as we want. And and the achievement and the maintenance of of happiness and self-satisfaction is first and foremost on our list of objectives. And our personal satisfaction, it drives us. And it isn't enough to keep those things to ourselves. We want to announce it to everyone around us. This is who I am. This is what I want. This is what I want to do. And you don't need to get in the way, you need to know that that I'm worthy of that and deserve that, and you don't need to get in the way of me at all experiencing that. And not only are you to accept that, you're to applaud it. Everyone everyone around just needs to deal with me. And Jesus, knowing the (laughs) depravity of man's heart, He understands this misplaced devotion, and he says very clearly, if you're going to follow me, your devotion needs to change. No more strong enthusiasm or admiration for yourself. No more loyalty to yourself. No more worship of yourself. And we think, well, why is that the case? Why is that so important? And and the answer is because there is nothing to admire. There's nothing to worship. There's nothing within us or about us that's worthy of loyalty and worthy of following. And Jesus is telling those who are following him at this point, they must acknowledge that unworthiness. Acknowledge the unworthiness that you possess. Your enthusiasm about yourselves must end because there's really, truly nothing about you, there's nothing about us that's well of which we should be enthused We must acknowledge that we don't deserve what we want where we want it how we want it and on down the line because happiness isn't what's most important the reality is holiness is. and to profess that Jesus is the Christ of God is to profess a strong enthusiasm and admiration For Him, above all else, because He alone is worthy, He alone is worthy of worship and admiration, He is alone worthy of that enthusiasm. Life is not about how we want to live, life is about how He wants us to live, it's about submitting ourselves to His rule, because He is the King, it's His kingdom, and we are merely subjects. We, uh, who we are and what we say and what we desire is not supreme. Who He is, what He desires, what He says, those are the things that are supreme. And brothers and sisters, this begins at the point of denying, right? It begins at this place of denying the false idea that we have the ability to save ourselves in any way. If we're going to follow Christ, it begins at the point of denying ourselves and our spiritual sufficiency and admitting our spiritual bankruptcy. It begins at this place of acknowledging that we have nothing to offer as far as our salvation is concerned. And any attempt to add to what Christ has done simply puts us in debt even more. It begins at this place of denial and denial of any ability or necessity that we have to contribute to what Christ has done. It's about resting in His work, and His provision for us, not in our own work and our own provision. And this, of course, has this spillover effect because this denial that we have of ourselves on, on behalf of or for the sake of Christ then becomes a denial of ourselves for the sake of others as well, for the sake of one another and others. Because when our devotion changes and, and our, the, the needs of others become p- more important than our own, when uh, our well-being, how we see our own well-being changes, the well-being of others becomes more important than our own. Uh, The best interest of others becomes more important than our own. And as we rest in His work, as we rest in His care for us, as we rest in His support for us, as we uh, rest in His service to us and His love for us, then we in turn begin to care for those who cannot care for themselves or us. We, we begin to support those who cannot support themselves or us. We begin to serve those who can't serve us or themselves. We begin to love the unlovable and love those who are unwilling and unable to love us. And Paul Reiterates this exact point when he writes to the church at Philippi and he says do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit But in humility count others more significant than yourselves Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others have this mind among you yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus The second demand is found right on the heels of that it's it involves a new desire A desire is defined as a wish or longing for something, and prior to our conversion, human wishes and and human longings are focused on pleasure and prosperity and power and health and wealth and ease and comfort. Prior to our conversion, our desires revolve around fleshly lusts and appetites. In some cases, they may be unnatural things that are evil, and in another case, they're over-desires for uh, good things. Gifts that the Lord has given to us. And when we add to that fact that we also want a life free of discomfort, free of pain, free of trouble, free of suffering and strife, again, not only do we want it, we believe we deserve it, but Jesus says the life of a follower will be characterized by the exact opposite. And he says, one who follows me will take up his cross daily. The life of a follower will be characterized by a new desire. There will be a wish or longing for a freedom from the presence of sin. Which leads to this ongoing and daily even moment by moment attempt or effort to identify and repent of. And mortify and put to death, or put to death, not only the actions, but the inclinations and the desires and the lusts and the appetites that are sinful themselves as well. Those things that easily entangle us. The new desire leads us to reliance upon the Holy Spirit. To sanctify and change us from the inside out. It's a new desire that leads to a daily dying to ourselves. And the removal of anything that detracts from Christ or distracts us from Him and our devotion to Him. And those who follow will also develop a longing to be found faithful in the midst of humiliation and suffering and persecution that Paul says is inevitable for those who desire to live godly lives. And this is why Peter would take these words of Jesus to heart in these moments. We believe he did because of what he would write in his first epistle. He says, For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward a good person Toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed, for you were continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. It clicked at some point for Peter. And brothers and sisters, bearing our cross in life is that day-to-day, moment-by-moment, dying to ourselves, dying to our selfish desires, fleeing youthful lusts and mortifying our sins. It's It's a daily life of asking the Lord to give us a desire and the grace that we need and the strength that we need to put off the old man and to put on the new. It's a daily life of a a desire to pursue righteousness and godliness and holiness. And of course, again, that leads to a life of bearing up underneath the suffering and the unjust treatment and persecution from the world. The inevitable uh, shame and persecution that comes from living godly lives that are in direct opposition to the lives the culture says we should live. As one pastor put it, if the father gave his son a cross, then do we think that his intention for us is to be conformed to Christ, or or do we think that his intention for us to be conformed to Christ would leave us crossless? Christ learned obedience through suffering, even though he had no sin. Can we who still struggle with remaining sin learn obedience without a cross? Questions to ask. The third demand is a new direction. Direction is defined as the way in which something goes or points. It's also defined as instructions given by someone who's in control. And prior, again, prior to our conversion, the way in which we go is, the ways in which we go are all determined by us, right? We determine our plans, we determine our own objectives, we determine our agendas, We take pride in our personal control and in our ability to call the shots. We want to believe that our we we want to believe our truth and we want to live our own unique, authentic lives as we see fit. We want to secure our own personal autonomy. We're libertarian to a fault. Independence is vaunted. And dependence is disparaged and considered weak. We're masters of our own destiny and we want to flaunt it so that everyone around us can see it. But Jesus is very clear, he says all that changes when we follow him. Right? It changes. He says, No more personal control. No more calling the shots. No more going your own way. No more going down your own path. One who follows me will seek the Father's kingdom first. One who follows me is going to seek my righteousness. One who follows me is going to follow the Father's word and is going to obey his commands. One who follows me is going to humble himself in obedience and will submit themselves to the Father's will. I have submitted myself to the Father's will and if you desire to imitate and follow me, you must do the same. A follower of mine wants to do that. One who desires to follow does not make up the rules himself, right? He follows the rules that are in place. She doesn't make up the direction, she follows the the directions that have been set. He doesn't alter the plans, he sticks to the plans as they've been presented. She doesn't stray and she follows close behind regardless of where the path leads. He understands that the Lord Jesus will lead him in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And she understands that those paths at times are going to lead right into dark valleys. And she follows anyway because she trusts, she trusts the King. And brothers and sisters, the, the peace... And the security that comes and the freedom that comes with following Christ cannot be overstated. And the hope and security of knowing that the one whom we follow is leading us down a path that he himself has walked cannot be exaggerated. He leads us in a direction that's not easy. It is in fact difficult and filled with trials and suffering, but ultimately it, re- it arrives at not only the point of our own conformity to the Lord Jesus, but it leads us to the dwelling place of God, where He will dwell with us and we will be His people, and God Himself will be with us as our God. It leads to a place where all of our tears will be wiped from our eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things will have passed away. That's where it leads. Now what he's communicating about this this new desire and new devotion and new direction is not trivial at all. As a matter of fact, it's not trivial because this newness of life that he's describing is not optional. For a, disciple who, for a disciple of his who acknowledges Christ and acknowledges his rightful rule as king, for them to maintain their own devotion and maintain their own desire and maintain their own direction is not only contrary to the life of one who is submitting to Christ, but it, it's actually treasonous when we talk in kingdom language. So Jesus, he he follows those significant demands with three very sobering possibilities. He says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him with a son of man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels the first possibility he lays out as a paradox he says I know I know it may be tempting to try and to keep your own devotion and to keep your own desires and to keep your own direction I know you you think that that is going to self satisfy and you need to hold on to your own goals and you need to hold on to your own uh, agendas because that that is how you are going to experience satisfaction in life. he says, but in the the end, he says, I know you're, you're tempted to those things because you think you know best. But he says, in the end, the old way will only keep you on a path to destruction. He says, it's not going to end well for you. He says, it's when you deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me that you will be on the path that is the only way to salvation. And he says that way is narrow and difficult and few find it but it leads to life. The second The second possibility is a question of profit. He says, I know you're tempted to think that your old devotion and desires and direction are going to lead to health and wealth and prosperity and prestige. And and they might, in fact, do so for a little while. As far as the world is concerned, as far as the world's standards may be concerned, you might receive those things. But, But what it takes to gain that worldly health and wealth and prosperity and prestige will cost you your soul because you can't serve two masters you can't bow to two you have to bow to one or the other and so you may maintain your own your own devotion desires and direction and gain the world but that world is fleeting and empty So he says, seek my kingdom first. Seek my kingdom first, and you will be saved and satisfied. Spend the brief time you have either pursuing these temporary things, or spend the moments that you have pursuing that which is eternal. And then the last possibility is a grave promise. He says, I know, I know for those who profess their faith in me as the Christ of God, there are going to be times that you're going to face mocking and jeering and shame and persecution. It's going to come. The world's going to laugh at you. They're going to try to embarrass you. They're going to persecute you for your pursuit of godliness. And you're going to be tempted to cower and shrink back and embrace your old ways because they provide the security. You know them. You're used to them. They provide the comfort that you want and desire. He says, don't do it. Don't revert back. Don't go back because you need to know that those who do, those who do revert back will be announcing That they're ashamed of me and his strong strong words that follow he says and if they're ashamed of me I'm gonna be ashamed of them when I stand before the Father and angels because the reality is he's saying I when judgment comes I cannot be an advocate of one who is ashamed of me And as you can imagine, they all felt the same way we do right now. But brothers and sisters, we live on the other side of the cross. Right? We live on the other side of the cross. The cost of discipleship, without a doubt, without a doubt, is great indeed. But thanks be to God that we know that what He calls us to, He equips us for. Jesus is not placing any extra requirements on us beyond or, or that contradict a grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone gospel at all. But he is saying that if we we believe that he is the Christ of God, if we are a Christian, because we're looking to his cross by grace, and by grace and through faith, we are clinging to that cross with all our might. Because all our hope of salvation comes from Him and is due to our union with Him, we are called to a changed life. And we are called to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Our devotion should change. Our desires should change. Our direction should change. And we live a life of change, again, because of the gospel and in light of the gospel, right? We live that life of change by faith and by the grace that He grants us. And the good news, right, is that when we we do fall back and when we do trip and we do revert back to those Old devotions and those old desires and those old directions, and and we do for a time find that comfort that's there, and we and we begin to to loosen our grip of our grip on the cross and and grip those old things and, and grip that old man. We don't have to give up. And we don't lose hope. Quite the contrary. We repent. We repent of our sin, and we rest in Christ. We rest in Him because He Himself was perfectly devoted to the Father. He, the Lord Jesus, perfectly maintained at all times His desire to glorify His Father. Jesus himself perfectly obeyed and fulfilled the will of the Father to the point of death on the cross and he did all of that for you and for me and his perfection has been credited to us and while we strive forward in these ways and in In how we've been called to live, we do so always, always, always resting in Him. And as a result, we're benefactors of far beyond what we would ever achieve on our own. It's not even comparable. In the words of Ligon Duncan, everyone who gives up their own satisfaction for Christ's sake and for the kingdom's sake now... Will receive a satisfaction that transcends anything that this world can give. The world promises, right? It promises and promotes, uh, well, it promotes our pursuit of self righteousness and self fulfillment and self indulgence and self promotion and, sa- and promises satisfaction if we do those things. Right? And then they tell us that if we'd be fools if we would reject their path. If we reject what they promote, if we reject what they promise, we'd be fools. But it's a lie. In the words of Puritan Philip Henry, he said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. We Have been united to Christ. For those who are looking to Him in faith, we have been united to Christ. We have been united in His death. We have been buried with Him in baptism. And we have been united to Him in His resurrection. We've been raised to walk. And we've been raised to walk in newness of life. So, brothers and sisters, may we all deny ourselves, take up our crosses and follow the Lord Jesus. Let's pray.